0: Well, good morning. Well, um, just to let you know, as you'll notice, we do not have the um, the screen down. We we're having technical problems with uh, the slides, or I believe with the um, the computer that runs it. So now we'll learn how the people back in the ancient world used to worship. So, um, happy Father's Day uh, to all the fathers uh, here. And uh, let me note a couple of things. Next Sunday uh, will be my installation uh, service here at the 1030 service. So I hope you can make it for that. And um, secondly, let me just make a reminder when you go out, take a look at the table to the right. I, I've been cleaning out my office and I'm coming across a bunch of booklets and old CDs of mine and Dr. Boyce and others, and if you would just take them, I'd appreciate it. Um, get them out. And, um, okay, with all that, then let's uh, prepare our hearts for worship. We're called to uh, worship. Let me read from Revelation chapter five or chapter four. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Let us pray. We come in ourselves, our Father, to give you thanks. To worship you in your holiness and in your your beauty. And we worship you in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the anointing, the blessing of your Holy Spirit, that in our worship of you that we might be a blessing to our great God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand to to worship singing, I love you, Lord. confession of faith taken from uh, questions uh, one and seven from the Westminster Larger Catechism. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. What is God? God is a Spirit, in and of Himself, infinite in being glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Let's turn now to the Lord in prayer and begin by praying together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our Father, on this day in which we honor our earthly fathers, all the more we give you thanks and praise that we may call you Father. You who are the great God in heaven who is over all of creation, the great king, the majestic one, you are also our father. And not as our father is simply as one who has created us. You are our father who has adopted us. We among your creatures who have rebelled against you had gone our own way. Yet you have sent your only son to come and to rescue us to bring us back to you, to, to pay the price for us. And how what a wondrous thought that, that is. What great love it is. And truly we say, how great is the love of our Father, that we should be called your children. We pray, our Father, that we, as your children, will honor your name, that you will not have cause to be ashamed of us, but have cause all the more. Uh, to to feel the pride that a father does for his children. May we honor you by the way that we live, by the way that we speak, by the way that we are faithful in our following of Jesus Christ. We pray that we will serve your kingdom well, and we pray for the return of our Lord. Until that time, may we be found faithful in serving you. May we be uh,
1: faithful in doing your will here upon. Would feed us, that we might do your will all the more that
0: you, we pray that you would feed us with your word, that we may understand your will, that we may be, uh, uh, that you would place your spirit in us to so sanctify us that we might do that will that we know. We pray, our Father, for our world and, and for your provisions, pray for the end of this pandemic. Pray for peace in our country and for understanding and reconciliation. We pray that you would forgive us of our sins, that we would all examine ourselves to see where we have not been those who have forgiven our debtors, to see if those in whom we may be in debt. May all the more, our Father, you do that work in us of forgiveness and of sanctification. We pray that we not be led into temptation deliver us from the evil one. And we lift these prayers before you because we recognize to you belongs to kingdom. To you belongs all of the power. Anything that we may do, it is to be done under your power. To you belongs to glory forever, recognizing that our chief and highest end is to glorify our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, Well, no matter our age and no matter how much energy we might have or ambitious we might be, all of us need rest. Uh, We desire rest at times from our weary labors and rest, what it means, how to attain it, that's the subject of our passage this morning. I invite you to follow along with me. And I think you have the scripture text there in your bulletin. We're going to begin by looking, reading verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach him. Now, entering his rest is entering God's rest. And our author here, when he's using that term, he gives it two connotations. There's the rest that one has, that one receives when you've been on a journey and you reach that final destination. Then there's also that rest that you can have when you exper- that you experience in the journey itself. So you take a train trip. And you can rest in the train while the engineer is doing that work of driving the train. Both of these concepts are in the writer's mind. And he takes, he takes a phrase from Psalm 95, the very same psalm that he was using back in chapter uh, 3 as well. And it's a psalm that refers to the Israelites who fell in the wilderness before entering their rest in that promised land. Now, in that psalm, the psalmist is warning his readers, do not let the same thing happen to you. Now, he then analyzes the cause that led to the Israelites' failure and now is applying to his readers. So look with me now in verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So here's what he's making the point. He's saying, look, the same good news, that good news of deliverance, came to your forefathers, to the Israelites, just as it has come to you. But here's the difference. Here's their problem. They did not receive the good news with faith. They heard, but they heard without faith. And that failure to believe is what kept them from reaching their final rest. He then goes on in verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. Okay, so he's saying now positively what he's just said negatively. The Israelites failed to enter the rest because they failed to believe. We, or you the readers, you do enter the rest because of believing. He then goes on in verse 3, As he has said, as God has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let me tell you in, in preparing uh, this message and going through the passage, see Emma and Marianne would appreciate this. If it had been in my class, my English class, or my Hebrew class, I would have given bad marks for this passage. Because he's, he, he's going to make a point, then he gives quotes that seem to make the opposite point, and it's hard to follow just what are you trying to say here. And that's what's happening. He talks about us, we have entered the rest. As he has said, I swear you're not going to enter my rest. Well, here's what he's trying to do here. He wants you to focus on those last two words, my rest. And this is what he's giving attention to. He wants you to explain what that rest is. And so he goes on in verse 3 all the way through verse 5. Although his works, that is God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. He wants you to focus not only not enter part, but my rest. Whose rest? God's rest. He wants the readers to understand what this kind of rest entails. And by going to Genesis, by pointing to God, he's saying it is a rest from work. Now, you might ask, God no longer works. How does he then uphold the universe? How does he cause his will to take place through the course of human history? Isn't he at work saving us? Well, the work that God is wrested from is the work of creation and that of setting the creation in order. As now the sovereign God, He no longer needs to work at maintaining control of what He has made. He's not like us. You might labor to build a business, but you know then, once you've had your business, the work is not done. You've got to keep laboring to, to maintain that business. Well, God's control is so wrapped up in his sovereignty and in the way that he has made creation that he can be said to have rested from his work. And so this is the type of rest, God's rest, that God offers to those who rest in him. There is the final rest of the spiritual promised land, and there is also the rest from laboring, to keep on that path and make it to that promised land. Now, so far, our author, he's used Genesis 2, 1 through 3. That's what he was quoting from when he said, well, somewhere it says this about God's resting. He's used Psalm 95 to warn his readers not to fail, to enter that rest like their ancestors did. Now what he's going to do is he's going to give a gospel invitation. He's going to turn again to Psalm 95 as well. Look with me in verse 6 and 7. Since therefore remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, In the words already quoted, and now he's going to give that quote. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is Billy Graham calling his readers, make a decision for the Lord today, now. Today God is calling you, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation, and you do not know how long today will be. And tomorrow might be too late. Tomorrow will be the day of judgment. So he's, he's given this call this, uh, to come, uh, to come to salvation. And then he adds a little warning to them in verse eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Here's what he's saying is do not make a mistake of thinking that the temporary rest that you might be experiencing right now means that you've made it, that you have received that eternal rest. You see, those who had entered the promised land of Canaan under Joshua, they may have thought that they had arrived. The journey's over. They have entered their rest. But Psalm 95 was written to those, to their children, generations later, who have now been living in, in the promised land for generations. And there, that writer of the psalm, he's warning them. He's warning them of the same thing that our writer is, is, is warning his people of now. Look, you have not arrived yet. There is a higher promised land that you have yet to attain. Do not think that because you have belonged to the covenant people, that you have received the promise, the real promise of rest. Do not, what you have to do now, is to receive it personally. Do not harden your hearts as individuals from being persons of faith. Okay, he then goes on in verse 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now what is this Sabbath rest that he's speaking of? Well, it is a rest from a works-based religion. It is a rest from having to try to earn favor with God by keeping the law. When a person uh, entered the rest of, of God's, okay, same kind of rest that God has, then like God, they have rested from working to get their salvation, to maintain their salvation. And that's good news. But then it's, in the next verse, it seems like he's going to say just the opposite. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So he just said, look, you can rest from work. You can rest from trying to have to earn salvation and so on. And now it seems that he's saying, well, you need, you really got to work at it. You've got to strive to enter that rest. You've got to be obedient all the way along so that you do not fall. I mean, when I'm reading this, this sounds to me like it says you've got to keep working. you got to work to get it. And you've got to work to maintain your salvation. So what gives? So when I'm working on this, I I look up the Greek term for that term strive. And what I discovered is not actually a, a term about working itself. It's a term about your attitude. It means to have zeal, to be earnest about. And so with that thought in mind, now consider the attitude that the the writers of both Psalm 95, the writers of Hebrews, what is the attitude that they're warning their readers about? Well, in both cases, they're addressing readers who have become complacent about their status before God. Here's the way such persons would be thinking. Look, we, we belong to God's chosen covenant people. I mean, that automatically makes us accepted by God. And as such, such God owes me. And just as the Israelites in the wilderness thought that God owed them a pleasant journey through that wilderness to the promised land, in the same way, so the Israelites who are now in that promised land of of, of Palestine or Canaan, they're living as though God owes them a pleasant life until they should enter their final rest. And just as the wilderness Israelites stumbled over their unexpected trials, in the same way, those Israelites who are now in the promised land are probably stumbling over their trials. They were not troubled with concern about how they might please God, but they were very much troubled about was that God was not pleasing them. God was not fulfilling His promise of a restful life. And so our author, He's cautioning His readers, do not slip into that kind of attitude, an attitude of entitlement, saying to yourselves, look, we have signed onto the new covenant. Hey, we've even been experiencing some suffering. It's about time that God pays up. Now, this leads to our author's comment about falling by the same sort of disobedience. Is, so, what is that disobedience that was that the people in the wilderness were guilty of, as well as the, uh, the Israelites who were already in the land of the promised land? What were they guilty of? Well, you think about it, so it's hard to decide which one, isn't it? I mean, there's plenty to to pick from. You could pick idolatry. You could pick licentiousness, injustice, greed. But his point is that they all stem from one source, and that is the sin of unbelief. He points this out in verse 2. Those who fail, fail because they lacked faith. And he had concluded back in chapter 3, verse 19, They were unable to enter because of unbelief. And so all the disobedience of the people, all those different types of sins, they were springing out of the single root of disobedience, of unbelief. That's what they were guilty of. So,
1: excuse
0: me. So let's now move to ourselves. We who are members of, of the church of Jesus Christ. Here are the two conditions, the same ones that we need to examine ourselves for, for as well. Number one, it has to do with that expectation about the final rest of the promised land. Number two it has to do with the rest that we are promised right now during our journey. So let's look at that first one. And I would say that the first one really applied uh, to me. You know, I grew up in the South, in a small town in South Carolina, and I was baptized as an infant, raised in a Presbyterian church. I attended Sunday school. I attended morning worship. I went to youth group in the evening. I accepted everything that I was taught about the, about who God is, about what Jesus has done, his Uh, as well as how I'm supposed to live. And just like an Israelite, I understood myself as belonging to God's chosen people. So therefore, I mean, I, I should be saved. What more do I need to do? Now, I did understand that I needed to maintain that status. But after all, it wasn't strenuous work to do. God, after all, we're told that God cared more about my good intent. I already belonged in his church family. Surely God will be lenient. I mean, he might not be boasting about me, but he would accept my good enough efforts. Are you like that? This is a a specific condition that just clings to those who have grown up in church. Your parents, you say to yourself, hey, they were good church members. They might even have been leaders, maybe even pillars in the church. You have not been disobedient or rebellious, for the most part. You, You believe everything, for the most part, so God should accept you. As adults now, you, you've taken your own responsibility of being active. You, you volunteer, you, you give your offerings, you agree with all the conservative positions theologically and also socially. You've been faithful to God for the most part. It might be a few times that you've kind of sowed your wild oats. But you've been faithful. And that rest that God promises, that rest of heaven it should be safe enough for you. So that's the first condition. The second condition is that of the rest that we have during the journey. Now you might be of those who know better than the first group. You, you know that to be saved for heaven's rest, look, you've got to receive Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior. Being a church member, going to church is not good enough. You have to have a real relationship with God. And you do. You have your personal devotions. You attend. You, you like to attend Bible studies. You like listening to Christian music and, and reading Christian books. You volunteer in ministries that present the gospel, that help the needy. You might even be teachers. You who are teaching the gospel. You know that God does not owe you salvation. You know that salvation is a gift. But now that you are saved, you have received that gift of the final rest that God promises. Well, you do have some expectations about the rest that you think you ought to have right now. Now that you are doing the good works that God has prepared for you to do, now that you're doing your part to please God, well, he should be doing his part for you. Unconsciously, or maybe even consciously, you also think that God owes you. Now, before you protest that you would never think that way, ask yourself, Why do you get startled when bad things happen to you? And you're asking, well, why did God let this happen to me? Why did God let this happen to my loved one? Why why has he allowed my my child to stray? Why did he allow my loved one to die? Why am I afflicted? I have done so much for God. I've done my best to please him. Why? Why? Why do I suffer when my neighbor, who thinks going to church every now and then, makes him right with God, it, that neighbor has the easy life. Everything is going right for him, and, not, and that makes him think that he's right with God. It's not fair. And so, again, there is the person who's thinking in that first condition. He's marching to the rest of the promised Land, when in truth he's ignorantly marching under God's wrath. Secondly, though, there's the person who's depending upon the grace of God to reach that promised land, but, you know, if it's going to be honest, is a bit frustrated with the lack of rest that he or she really is receiving in this world. Now, regarding that first condition, for anyone to whom this may apply let me ask you are you resting on your credentials to get you into heaven at the gate of heaven before the lord do you plan to present your credentials you're going to show how your parents and your grandparents were good members of the church how you were you're going to testify that you were raised in a christian home and you dutifully attended a a good gospel teaching church and, and you volunteered? Do you anticipate that you're going to take and, and that you'll pass a test on some doctrine and some social issues? Do you think that you'll be presenting testimonials of how good you were, or at least, again, how you tried to be? Well, if that's the case, then like the author's telling his readers, I fear for you, lest you should fail to enter that final rest. And I exhort you now to examine your heart. If you think that you are good enough, that you have done enough, that you have good enough credentials, you don't understand the gospel. You just don't know what it means. You do not understand who Jesus is. You don't understand what he's done. And you need to count the cost not the cost that you must pay to live for him, but you need to count the cost that Jesus has paid for you. Until you understand how high that cost is and how you have nothing to contribute, until you understand that your credentials mean nothing, you will not enter God's final rest. It's only when you recognize that you have nothing to bring to God, but what he has given to you in Jesus Christ. Then you will be received by him into that final rest. Now, regarding that second condition, let me ask you, what is the rest in this life that you really value? Were you thinking that you could follow Jesus well enough that God should reward you now with, maybe not with a trial-free life, but at least with a life that doesn't have many trials and not great trials in them. Again, has it not occurred to you that the real rest, the rest that is of real value, is that rest from earning your salvation, of being guaranteed the eternal rest to come? If you refuse... To accept the suffering that can come your way. Can't you see how you are guilty of the same thing of the people as as the first condition? You think that your credentials of good works should prove, should provide for you a trial free life right now. Indeed, what you actually are saying to God is this. Thank you for my salvation. But what I really think that I should, need, I should like to have is a pleasant life right now. Now that's the case. I fear for you lest your resentment of not having the rest that you think you should have right now will cause you to falter. There are many, many professing Christians who have left the faith because they did not anticipate the suffering that they must endure in this life. And the cure for both conditions is this. Look alone to Jesus Christ. Place your hope for the final rest in his work alone. Find your rest now in his work alone. He has gone to the cross for you. He even now is your high priest. He's watching over you. Come to him. Come to him every single day as he bids you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We thank you, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ and for that rest that he has won for us. We look to that final rest to come that he has won. May we find rest and take rest right now in that reconciliation we have with you. Rest in our Lord Jesus Christ. Take joy in what we have. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's uh, stand and sing together. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen. And the usher is going to come and they will, uh, dismiss you.